0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Rehash a Web3 Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and today we have the privilege of speaking with an Ethereum OG, Hudson Jameson. Hudson is a developer who first learned about Bitcoin in 2011 and went on to create and launch the blockchain program at USAA in 2014, and then joined the Ethereum Foundation in 2016, where he worked until 2021. In 2019, while working at the Ethereum Foundation, Hudson also co-founded the Ethereum Cat Herders, an educational platform and research hub that supports the Ethereum network. Hudson has made countless podcast appearances in the past and given countless talks at crypto conferences that you can go look up online that recounts his origin story and the origin story of Ethereum. So we're not going to go too in-depth on that in this episode. But if you're curious to learn more about Hudson's background, After listening to the episode, I would encourage all of you to go to YouTube or Google and search for Hudson Jameson, and you'll find a lot of good content there. I would also encourage anyone listening who wants to learn more about the history of Ethereum to go read The Infinite Machine by Cami Russo or The Cryptopians by Laura Shin for a full primer on that. In this episode, we start off by talking about some of Hudson's learnings from his long time in Ethereum including what he believes to have been the most pivotal moment in Ethereum history, how the community and culture around Ethereum has changed since 2015, and the biggest learnings from mistakes made during Ethereum's time that other blockchains or other crypto projects today can learn from. We then get into his take on the current state of Ethereum and L2s and how he sees L2s interacting in the future, as well as a new whistleblowing use case for blockchain tech that he would love to see get built out and that I had never heard of before. Finally, we wrap up with a conversation on dealing with burnout in crypto as Hudson shares his own burnout story that landed him in a mental hospital twice and inspired him to finally get much more involved in his own mental health journey. It's a story that I think is all too relatable to those of us working in crypto And Hudson shares his honest and raw thoughts on what we can do to protect our mental health while working in crypto, as well as what institutions and employers can do as well. I am so appreciative of Hudson's openness and honesty when it comes to talking about these personal and sometimes still taboo topics like mental health, and I hope it inspires everyone listening or watching to go and touch grass and take care of yourselves after listening to this. Hudson was nominated by Andy Boyan and voted onto the podcast by Billy Ludkey, Flappy Abe, Andy Boyan, and myself, Diana Chen. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Hudson Jameson. Hudson, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing really good. How are you? I am doing great. I'm excited that we're finally getting a chance to meet and to chat after having just Twitter interactions here and there for a few years. The first thing I'm going to start off with, and I don't normally do this in most episodes, is I'm going to start out with a question from our community member, Karsten. He's an excellent Mm -hmm. member of the community, super involved. And so I'm just going to start with his question, which is, he said, you know, he saw your Twitter bio and in your bio, it says, I enjoy my cats, my spouse, privacy tech, and ice cream. And he wants to know if that is the order in which you enjoy those things. I have been asked
1: that before. And I would say... No, not necessarily. My spouse should be first, but (laughs) sometimes, you know, when you're just having a bad day, you want to pet a cat. So.
0: Word. I totally feel that. I don't have cats, but I have a dog and I I feel the exact same way so I can relate. And then what's your favorite or what's your go-to ice cream flavor?
1: Oh, definitely cookies and cream. That's pretty much always what I do. There's other, I mean, I like other ice cream flavors, but that's the go-to.
0: Solid. That is a solid choice. I usually go for strawberry, but I'm also a bit picky about what kind of strawberry it is. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. like the strawberry that tastes super fake and not like real strawberry. Like
1: artificial, yeah. Yeah.
0: So, Hudson, you are an OG in Ethereum, and I'm not going to make you dive into the whole backstory because that's a lot. And if people want to know the whole history of Ethereum and how it got up and going, they can read Cami Russo's book, The Infinite Machine, or they can read Laura Shin's book, which is called The Cryptopians, right? Yeah, I actually haven't read Laura's yet, but Cammy's I thought was a great primer for anyone new entering the space. But I did want to ask a few questions about your experience working on Ethereum since basically the very beginning. And the first one is, in your opinion, what would you say were some of the most pivotal moments in Ethereum history and why?
1: I mean, the one that everyone's going to go to at first who were around in 2014 or 2015 or all of that is going to be the DAO, mm-hmm. the DAO hack where Pretty much the only dap on ethereum was this DAO where everyone put ether in and it was going to be this huge awesome use case to show ethereum off and turned out it got hacked and then the community had to come together and decide if they were going to let the hacker take what was a pretty sizable percentage of this funds in circulation or put something in the code through a hard fork that will give the money back to people so that's how ethereum classic got made so that was definitely pivotal
0: Yeah, for sure. And the next thing I was going to ask you is actually, what do you think was the biggest mistake that was made in Ethereum history? And maybe it's the same answer. Yeah.
1: As far as the biggest mistake in Ethereum history, we've definitely had a lot of learnings. I think a few of them in general is going to be kind of hero worship, even from a company level. I I feel like people putting too much onus on consensus early in the days or Vitalik, even up to this point, With Vitalik, it's helped and hurt, right? Like, it really inspires a lot of people the way that they do things, but it's kind of surprising to me how many people don't realize that he's a flawed human, I guess. And so what that does is kind of make this, like, mightier or, like, smarter-than-thou figure, which, yeah, it's not bad all the time, but it does detract from everybody else who is working and improving the project and doing just as much as he is. I can't think of one giant example, I guess. The the Dow hack is probably up there for sure as far as huge examples of uh, things that went wrong.
0: For sure. And so what's the learning that we can take out of that? Like blockchains that are operating today, especially newer blockchains, what's the learning they can take to make sure they don't repeat the same mistakes that Ethereum made or any fatal mistakes that might lead to their demise?
1: Yeah, so I think one of it is try to maintain values. I know there's been a lot about Ethereum alignment lately and it's becoming like a cringe term because a lot of projects are using it potentially not all of them some of them are actually ethereum aligned and they're just using it properly but others are using it in order to gain market clout in the community and stuff so i think that you just need to keep your values you don't even have to say them but like ethereum definitely has some straightforward values that can get lost if there's too much greed we're working on these money machines but there's something more to them than just producing money or capturing value or trading value
0: to that point, the point about values, and then also back to your point about not having so much hero worship, what are your best pieces of advice for how we can actively do those things? I think both of those things are easier said than done. And with the hero worship piece, we see that not just with big figures like Vitalik, but even with micro niche celebrities on crypto Twitter. Mm. And on the one hand, it's maybe some of them enjoy it. Maybe it feels nice to be recognized when you're out at conferences and stuff. But on the other hand, It's also a lot of pressure that Mm -hmm. like everything you say on Twitter, even if you're shit posting, even if you're joking, people might misinterpret that and take that to be serious and rely on your information and you feel responsible for that. So from all perspectives, how can we do better with this value alignment thing within organizations and then also with trying to not have so much hero worship?
1: So the two biggest things are going to be eliminate the echo chamber. So getting out there and meeting new devs and devs who are just on Twitter and interested in stuff, like I'll see a cool Twitter post from someone with like no followers, but Mm -hmm. it's clearly not a bot. And I'll just message them and be like, hey, that was really cool. Have you met these people and stuff like that? It's ebbed and flowed, but especially in the last bull market, I would go to conferences and it'd be the same set of like 40 people I'd hang out with every time. After a while, I was like, oh, we need to bring new people in. And, And a lot of private group chats do that. So I guess getting out of the echo chamber by meeting new devs from the outside and keeping perspective. And the second one is purposefully offering support and mentorship and stuff. I'm actually doing that push at Polygon where a lot of the leadership, especially technical leadership and founders, you're going to start seeing them more at hacker houses and places where there's just a handful of younger, maybe college age devs hacking and oh my gosh, they get to see this person or that person. And and that makes a big impact, even if it's not a room of 300 people.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I've definitely experienced that as well, where I've met people, maybe they got nominated to rehash by the community and they're people I've never heard of before, people maybe with not very big Twitter followings. And it's been some of the best conversations I've had on the podcast and I've learned so much from those people. So absolutely, there are so many people out there just heads down building and they're super smart and super hard working, but they're just not interested in being a public figure on Twitter. And so no one knows about them and no one gets to hear all the smart things they have to say. Kind of relatedly, I was curious to hear your take about how you see the community and culture surrounding the Ethereum ecosystem having changed since 20, I think it was 2016 that you joined, right?
1: Yes, 2016, I joined the Ethereum Foundation, but I was helping since 2015, I think.
0: The interesting thing about your background is that you're a dev, but most of the work that you've done has actually been doing things with the community, organizing things, being more of like a dev liaison of sorts. So yeah, from your view, how has the community and culture changed?
1: Yeah, I think that there's been a lot of scalability issues as we've grown, for sure. I think that It it makes it sometimes difficult to understand how to fix these scalability problems of like, oh, instead of just a core group of people working fast and breaking things, now we have everybody with a ton of opinions and that's both in the community and also in dApps and also in protocol development. So the answer to how you deal with that is you maintain a lot of cross-communication with these, I call them like runners or dev liaisons, coordinators, where the best example, the one I always use... (laughs) is Tim Baiko and Trent Van Epps from the Ethereum Foundation, who do a lot of the go-betweens for dApps, public good funds, etc., to the core developers and what the community is wanting to know about and stuff like that. Christine Kim from Galaxy Digital is another good person for that, who writes a lot and does a lot of communication work for core developers uh, to you know, normal community members, I guess. So yeah, that's what I'd say is how you deal with it. Just having people be go-betweens as we scale higher but make sure everyone kind of stays on the same page.
0: I don't know how many of you know this about me, but my path to podcasting in Web3 was actually quite non-linear, from being a lawyer to a travel blogger to a podcaster and so many other little things in between. Because of this convoluted journey, I've always struggled with how to tell my full story via traditional means like a resume or LinkedIn bio and I always felt there was so much context missing from these mediums that probably left any potential client or employer reading it totally confused about who I am or what I can offer. So while I absolutely love certain aspects of being self-employed, like being my own boss and being able to set my own schedule, there are other aspects that have been a constant source of frustration, like the fact that existing apps and tooling don't seem to be built for self-employed people at all. That's why I'm so excited about Quest, a new platform that lets me record all of my contributions on chain, decide which projects I want to showcase and take control of my professional identity to follow along with our rehash quests and check out my profile. You can sign up at quest.com DC. So you never miss an episode and create your own quest profile today. What about with the broader Ethereum community, like users of Ethereum apps or anybody who's fringely related, anybody on crypto Twitter? How have you seen the culture there change? Because I didn't enter the space until late 2020 after DeFi summer. So I I missed a lot of the early days of that. And it's interesting for me because after I've joined, I still see some of those OG people and I see all the different communities on crypto Twitter, like the hardcore DeFi people who were in it from the beginning who were like Bitcoin maxis that then learned about Ethereum and then the newer people that have come in through NFTs or through art or music. So I'm sure you've seen even bigger changes over time starting in 2015.
1: Yes, absolutely. I would say that the two biggest differences in the old days, everything was like a fork of Bitcoin or something that would be inspired by Bitcoin. And Bitcoin was the thing. People were coming from Bitcoin to Ethereum, but it was almost always technical people. There weren't even a lot of use cases until the network really gained stability, maybe late 2016, 2017, that were being implemented. It was all ideas. So that being said, we kind of ditched the Bitcoin elements of it and then created our own narratives and values and culture, which we had from the beginning. But since everyone was so technical, there wasn't a lot of People living it outside of the technical nature of what we were building. And I think also what something that I found that was really cool that I think a lot of people don't notice. We Ethereum in general, I feel like attracts a lot of the, I guess younger. I'm 32. So I like, think I don't know what's younger, but like basically people between the ages of 16 and 25 who bring a different perspective and different memes and like they'll just cut through the bullshit. They don't have as much hero worship, or if they do, it's like, measured and balanced compared to people who weren't chronically online their whole lives and are jumping into this and feel like it's a a brand new thing for them. So I think that overall, having the younger crowd is, in my opinion, very, very, very beneficial.
0: That's a really interesting take. And I guess something I didn't realize was something that changed because I entered the space and I was like, yeah, there's just so many young people here. There's always been so many young people here. But how would you like to see the community and the culture continue to change?
1: I think there's an inevitability with a lot of the layer two cross-chain interoperable stuff. And so as we grow, I think Ethereum isn't just going to mean the Ethereum chain anymore. It's going to be bigger than that. I mean, everyone kind of, oh, Ethereum alignment is something you shouldn't say right now because it's cringe, but I really do want everything that's connecting to Ethereum to be at least somewhat Ethereum aligned or else it's not going to be something that I feel like is a value add for Ethereum. At the same time, it's a permissionless network. so. If that doesn't happen, then I guess it's not the end of the world, as long as it's not getting co-opted by a lot of different other chains and, and visions and br- bridges and stuff.
0: And just to help everyone be on the same page, when we say Ethereum alignment, what are actually those values that we're talking about?
1: Yeah. So Ethereum alignment, in my opinion, there's actually a really good blog that I'll. if you have notes on this, I'll send you the blog after. It was probably the best blog I've ever seen on Ethereum alignment and values. And It listed some of them. And in my mind, the one that I've thought of are decentralization and that can mean so many things to so many different people. But in my mind, it means if you need to send value or money to a country that is trying to censor that, it can get through and the government cannot go inside and delete the message, take the money, etc. So it's like at the point where it would be non-trivial, not impossible for a government to shut down the network. That's when I'm like, this is fully decentralized. At the same time, it's going to take some time to get there. And this is still a really new project in the grand scheme of things. There's also the value of trust minimization. And then there's some other technical values that are there. But I think one of the biggest ones is not taking ourselves too seriously. One of the things that had us stick out in the early days compared to Bitcoin was Vitalik and stuff wearing whatever they wanted to wear. And it usually was like bright or weird or something like that. And all the Bitcoiners would make fun of them. So we all were like, oh, you're going to make fun of Vitalic, the unicorns and all this stuff because you, that you think it's like cliche or something. We're going to just embrace it because like if we don't have everything perfect to a T and our Nakamoto coefficient isn't exactly this number or something, like we don't care. We want, I, I guess the number one thing is pragmatism. We value pragmatism over dogma. Because Bitcoin's dogma, we're pragmatic.
0: Love it. Love it. And your mushroom shirt for anybody watching this on YouTube and not listening to just the audio. Everybody can see that you have fully embraced that, you know, just the out there, the not dressing in, like you were saying earlier, not doing the just black T-shirts that everybody in tech does and doing something a little different. I love it.
1: Yeah, you should definitely be seeing Tarun. From Gauntlet. They also wear crazy clothes.
0: Okay, I will have to look up some videos. I'm sure there's videos of them on YouTube and stuff. For sure. So, one last thing I was going to ask is what aspects of either the core ethos of Ethereum or any aspect of Ethereum do you think are the most overlooked or just not talked about as much as it should be? Because I think a lot of what gets talked about, if you're outside of the core dev community, is the memes that you see proliferated on Twitter or whatever the people with the most followers are talking about and generally speaking like most of the devs who are actually building are not the ones with the loudest voices on twitter so in your opinion and like what are the most overlooked or under talked about things.
1: I would say the the most overlooked is the friendliness and accepting of new people into the ecosystem. And this actually goes back all the way to the beginning of Ethereum. And this is also highlighted more or less in Boris Shin's book, I believe, where we have Gavin Wood and Charles Hoskinson, for example. They're now running their own projects. Charles is Ada and Polkadot is Gavin Wood. And both of them, in my opinion, even though well, actually, I've gotten into a fight with Charles on Twitter. They're the only person I've fought, really, because I don't have a high opinion of them. And, and Gavin and Mir, okay, but at the same time, they both have this exclusivity-ness to what they're building, this kind of like, I have the answers and stuff like that that I feel like people like Vitalik and others in the early days didn't have. And so it was a lot more welcoming to work there than to work on these other chains, even once they got launched or other people left the Ethereum Foundation or things like that. So definitely not perfect, but the friendliness and acceptance of even people all the way to the top to bring in new people and listen to new ideas, I think is very overrated.
0: Yeah. Do you have any one fond memory that really sticks out from your time at the Ethereum Foundation?
1: Oh, man. Oh, what is like one fun memory? Let me think.
0: Like fond, so, fun or fond. I Just like some, a memory that you look back on and it's like a core memory. You really treasure it.
1: Yeah. So yeah. I would say one of those memories is going to be at DevCon 4 because it was probably the best DevCon ever. DevCon 6, though, in Bogota was a, a close second. But DevCon 4 in Prague, just the fact that Prague is such a great city when I was there, I was actually running DevCon because I helped run, well, volunteered at DevCon one and then ran DevCon two and three and four. So four was kind of the biggest one I had ran so far. And it really went off just about without a hitch. The food was perfect. And I was much younger at the time. So I would like literally get up at eight, spend 12 to 14 hours working and then going to parties and events. Like the first RaveCon was there. And with RaveCon, Literally, I got a text like, hey, meet at this spot. And I was like, okay. And it was like sundown. And there's a cul-de-sac with abandoned buildings. And, you know, I'm in a city I'm not familiar with. And then they get another text. It's like, go down this dark path between these two abandoned buildings and you'll find RaveCon. And I was like, okay, which now I wouldn't do that. <laughs> this, is, but, this,
0: it's, this is literally how every murder story starts.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. And I, I know that now, so it's going to be, um, <laughs> yeah, but it, did, it turned out to be a great event. I was dressed up as David S. Pumpkins from Saturday Night Live. So yeah, the fondest memory was probably the DevCon 4 stuff, because as stressful as it was, there was a lot that got done. There were some decisions and dev meetings that were made there that are still being played out, the decisions today.
0: Is there value, by the way, for non-technical people to go to DevCon's?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Since at least DevCon three or four, actually four, we've been doing beginner track stuff. And then there's also a lot of side events where you can learn about things. There's just a bunch of people walking around at DevCon six. They also had like little games and booths. And even if you're not a dev, but you're just a user, like you've sent a transaction, you've bought an ENS name, you've yeah. traded on Uniswap, those booths are all there. So you can kind of like see the people making this and ask questions. So no, you don't have to be that technical to be there.
0: How much of that backend tech stack do you think a non-technical person working in crypto should know?
1: If they were to be a developer in crypto? No, no, just
0: just in general. Just somebody, yeah, anybody working in crypto. Because I mean, I think there's some like basic knowledge that everybody should have, you know, about how the tech works. But obviously, if you're not a dev, you're not coding, you're not in that day to day, you don't have to know all of the details of it. So I'm just curious, in your opinion, how much of that tech stack does the non-dev need to know?
1: So because where we're at right now, which is like basically year seven or eight of Ethereum, you mainly need to know enough so that if you have an issue with your transactions, you can go in and say, oh, you know, my transaction has too low of gas. I can hit the speed up button in MetaMask or like, oh, I have this other issue and I look on Etherscan and it says it's good or bad. I don't think you need to have like. A ton of back-end knowledge, you do need to know about scams. There's a lot that needs to be understood about preventing SIM swapping, preventing scams, knowing what you're signing, and that's more actually on the part of the developers of some of these wallets and extensions and things like that. But MetaMask just released Snaps, which is going to have some things in there to detect transactions that might be scamming you. There's also extensions for the browser that just connects to any wallet there that tells you what you're sending. So to answer your question, you don't need to know a ton of the back end or like a blockchain does this and here's proof of work versus proof of stake. You don't really need to know that, but you do need to know that scams. It is nice to know about the other stuff. Basically, my definition of mainstream is when I'm using Ethereum or like a bridge or an L2 or something, and it's not showing me anything about the blockchain. Kind of yeah. like if you're going to google.com. There's a hundred different things in the background happening, and back in 1992, you needed to know what those things are because when you got, you know, an error code from your raw, you know, sin, you need to know what that is. But now it's like all handled. So that's what I'm hoping for in the next decade.
0: My biggest thing with MetaMask is, and it has been, is just like the lack of human readableness on the MetaMask trans- transaction. Like when you open up the transaction, it's just a bunch of gibberish. A bunch of characters how am i to know if that's legit or not why can't it just be in plain english like this is what the transaction is doing you are now minting this nft Mm. you're minting one of these and then you know another layer on top of that like your friend hudson jameson has also minted this and your friend tim biko has also minted this i'm like okay well this is probably legit like i trust
1: (laughs) yeah no i completely agree with you that we need stuff like that some of that's starting to come very slowly But the biggest issue is if the person who launches the NFT contract or like the DeFi contract, if they don't put their code out there open source, then these things can't read it. They can't read it and say, here's this or here's what this means and here's what that means. So it's all gibberish. But I completely agree we should be pushing for contract makers to have a standard to help things like MetaMask read it like that. That'd be really cool.
0: Yeah. So if I asked you to give, let's say a product review or like a state of the union address on the state of Ethereum today, how would you describe Ethereum?
1: So I would say that Ethereum is very strong and it is one of the kinds of chains that are going to make it through any bull market or bear market or whatever have you, because there's still a very strong foundation. A lot of what I worked for all the time I was at the EF, so like six years or something, was protocol layer coordination. And I feel like that is also still very strong. Any quibbles or things that happen get worked out. Everyone's pretty mature. So as long as that stays around the mature protocol devs, and as long as we have a community that's willing to help each other and work out differences, I think that it's going to flourish. Some of the things that could be bad and take it down is arguing or changing values. Another one would be, not doing enough to stop scams because mainstream adoption won't happen if everyone who tries to come from the mainstream gets scammed. So that's just a huge problem right now. But overall, I'd say we're on the right track. And if we were to go any faster, there would be more problems.
0: Yeah, I hear you. What about the state of L2s? Obviously, you work at Polygon, so you have probably some biases there. But if you were to try and give your most objective take on the state of L2s today, what would you say?
1: I think L2s are far ahead of schedule. So there was a lot of things, especially with zero knowledge rollups that were ideated on and then uh, researched and then implemented in the last year, year and a half that people said would take half a decade. That's all behind the scenes stuff, though. So although a lot of the nitty gritty research stuff isn't as out in the open as it needs to be from almost any of the L2 teams, just know that behind the scenes, some really, really awesome things are happening on the tech side. We are going to be going through a similar cycle as Ethereum did in the first place of you know, having a bumpy road for adoption and having a bumpy road for people integrating and having implementations with it. Because back in the day when there was hardly any resources on Ethereum and hardly any types of YouTube videos or anything like that to teach you, that's kind of the same with the technical part of L2s right now. So yeah, I'm really hopeful that's going to change.
0: What's the future of L2s as you envision it? Do you envision one L2 taking center stage kind of as Ethereum did? Or do you envision multiple different L2s? Maybe like this L2 is more geared towards technical people and technical projects. Another L2 is geared towards creators and media people. Another L2 is geared towards like blah, blah, blah. How do you envision the future of L2s?
1: I think that it's going to be not as fragmented as a lot of people say. I think that the L2s are going to interop with each other and it won't even be the l2s building it like not necessarily scroll saying we want to work and connect to the polygon chain but there's all other you know projects like wormhole for example is a project that's connecting all these different chains Mm -hmm. and although i'm not a huge fan of bridges it's one of the only ways to do it right now but there are some plans to work out at least at polygon some plans to build what we're calling a unified liquidity layer so all of these different chains that are coming off a of Polygon and even maybe eventually other chains themselves can all be interconnected and you can seamlessly trade a token or a coin and you don't have to bridge it six different places or at different other values or having the dApps across everything. So I see it less being spread apart and more coming together with Ethereum L1 acting as a very secure bedrock layer where that can't be changed. So you only put the most important things or some of the proofs on Ethereum L1 and everything else goes on to whichever L2, you know, you want to do for that time. You don't really need a tank to, you know, take an NFT transaction all the way into the L1 if it's worth a dollar. So that's what an L2 would be for. But if you have a million dollars you're sending, maybe you want to use Ethereum L1 if it's more secure uh, or has less MEB than some of the L2s.
0: So right now, if somebody is trying to decide which L2 to, say, launch an NFT project, what's the thought process that they should be going through to decide which one they want to use?
1: So yeah, I'm not entirely that deep in the NFT community, at least from what I've heard, Polygon does have an NFT presence. And then also, I know that some things that I've been very uh, impressed by have been Starkware's privacy stuff. I'm not sure how far along it is and if it actually supports contracts yet. I know they were working on that. But yeah, unfortunately, I don't keep up enough with NFTs to know where they should be deployed. Looking at contracts, a lot of uh, L2s have really cheap fees, so most of them would be good.
0: Yeah, I I think the L2 question has always been top of mind for me a lot because it's been interesting to see how different L2s have grown at different paces. Like, I, I think Polygon was growing super fast and then now we're seeing Optimism, I think, doing a lot of things. And then with Base and Zora on the OP stack that a lot of people are using as well, it, it seems like they're really coming up. But yeah, it has been interesting to see like how all of them have grown. Yeah.
1: And an interesting little fact, Optimism, they used to be known as Plasma Group back in like 2017. So there was a, what was that company? Omisego. Omise Go. hired Jean and Carl and some of their team to make what's called Plasma Group. One of the first L2 papers back in 2017, I think, Mm -hmm. was called the Plasma Paper. And it was the big thing like everyone was super excited about. This was before any L2 was even out there. And Plasma Group then became Optimism when people were dropping Plasma and they separated from Amise Go, if I recall. And so Optimism then started. It was one of the earliest L2 projects. And since, since then, They've had a series of really great researchers. I'm still friends with the people at Optimism, as well as some of the people at Scroll. I kind of like just have friends (laughs) in all the L2s, so I can't be too biased for Polygon because these all are my friends.
0: Before starting Rehash, I was a solo creator for many years, and I often felt disconnected and lonely despite doing something I loved. With Rehash, I was seeking more connection and set out to create a community-generated podcast. Since then, I've made genuine connections with community members and fans by co-creating the show. That's why I'm so excited about Lore's launch on base. Lore is an all-in-one platform for communities to bring their members and their funds on-chain. From there, communities hang out in a forum, crowdsource decisions, and make transactions together. Now, it's easier than ever to fund and co-create media initiatives like Rehash. Go to laura.xyz to kickstart your community initiative today. Yes. Moving forward, what new use cases for blockchain tech would you be most excited to see if you had to imagine some new use cases?
1: Yes, I love that you brought this up because everyone's always talking about DeFi and NFTs. And (laughs) full honesty, I do not do much of either beyond normal trading, I guess, every once in a while, but nothing crazy. So my use cases that I hope it comes up with is a lot of privacy related ones. So one that I keep pitching, and I'm going to keep pitching this idea until someone builds it. I do not have the time. There needs to be a whistleblowing platform. So like a WikiLeaks, but... You use something like whatever New Cypher turned into to have an encrypted channel where you send files piecemeal to a group of judges, like people from newspapers and stuff. So like I'm a someone who's wanting to whistleblow on my company. So I send it to them. The judges each have a reputation score and I, as an anonymous whistleblower, have a reputation score. So maybe I do multiple things like that. When they send it, you have to stake a little bit of coin so that you can't just spam documents. And then they look at it, and once they look at it, they say if it's a leak or not, and then you get reputation points back. There's also a thing where you can donate to these judges, and when you donate, if any of the whistleblowers get arrested for whistleblowing, like in a country that doesn't allow it or something, that money will be pooled together to pay for lawyers for anyone who could say they provably whistle blew to them. So how that can work is with zero knowledge proofs where you can prove that you sent something without revealing what you sent. So you have like that little text string that proves it. So yeah. you'd be using zero knowledge proofs, you'd be using a blockchain for time stamping. you'd be using a reputation system. You could even put NFTs on there, but basically it would just be a non-NFT, non-DeFi use case.
0: Very cool. I've not heard anything like that, but I think that's super creative and really useful use case as well. Switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about something else that I actually think this might have been how I found you on Twitter originally, or I think I was probably already following you at that point through like Ethereum cat herders. I I had Pooja and Tim on the podcast years ago and probably found you through that. But you have been very open and vocal about mental health issues and about dealing with burnout in the crypto space. And I think that's super cool because you don't see a lot of people talking about that so openly and especially not a lot of guys. And I commend you for that. First of all, I Thanks. think that's super, super cool. But I, I just wanted our listeners too to get a chance to hear your story a little bit, because I think it's something that's very relatable for a lot of people. And also, I just want to get rid of this taboo of like not talking about it. So we're just going to talk sure. about it as much as we can. You know, you went through something in the last bull run where you just got totally burnt out, which is totally understandable. You've been working in crypto since 2015 and then made it, what was that, like six years before yeah. you just like <laughs> completely wiped out. Can you tell us sort of what happened around that and share your story a little bit?
1: Sure, sure. Oh, and also trigger warning, <laughs> suicidal ideation talk, not actually anything violent. Yeah. So, yeah. So basically, I've been working yeah in the ethereum space roughly since 2015 but even before then i've been doing blockchain stuff since 2011 so it was well overdue for me to have taken a break but yeah what i did was i was working at a bank in 2015 and i went to devcon one and it was like the greatest day of my life where like i saw all my heroes and i was like oh my gosh this core devs here and this developer and i was talking to all them and when i left the executive director ming said, hey, do you want to work for the Ethereum Foundation? So I started working in the middle of 2016. From then until 2020, roughly, and I left in 2021, I was pretty much always on call. And this wasn't something where like, someone was like, no, you need to be on call at all hours of the day. I just loved the job so much, it didn't feel like work. So I would be on call for any incident response rooms for all of the Ethereum incidents that would happen on chain. there need to be a war room and a blog post out. I planned every hard fork every other Friday. I did the core developer meetings when I wasn't doing that, I was doing community stuff, DevOps and security stuff for the foundation and just other things. So like I was online 12 to 16 hours a day, and that's including some of the, just being on my phone, answering messages. So that really took a toll on my relationship with my spouse and also my friends and family, because I was just always doing Ethereum. I was entirely obsessed. We will find out later that it was because of a little bit of autism where I got tested last year and I was like, oh, yeah, I've been doing blockchain since 2011. And they were like, what else have you done? And I was like, and, and so they're like, oh, yeah, that's your, spe- your autistic special interest. I'm like, oh, OK. And, and so, yeah, they I, I
0: wonder what percentage of the crypto community is autistic, because <laughs> I you think know, so many yeah. people can relate to that.
1: Absolutely. And I love getting tested as an adult, but I mean, obviously it's not affordable in some places or people just can't afford it in some places or times in their lives. So if you just look up the things and you think you are, you can call yourself it. I, I'm kind of disagree with people who are like, you have to be tested to call yourself that. Anyways, yeah, I got burned out after a while. One of the things that happened was I got really, really badly depressed and I had been having depression and bipolar two symptoms since college. Specifically, I was in the car with my spouse in college And we were driving and I was like, oh, you know, everybody every day thinks about the whole plan for how to kill themselves. And they're like, no, no one thinks about that. And I'm like, no, everyone, right? And I was like, had never thought just every day you have those thoughts. So how my stuff manifested later or like during that time and then off and on later was I would get like extremely fixated and my mind looping on the plans around it rather than actually doing it. Like I never wanted to, but the Thoughts couldn't stop. It's called intrusive thoughts. So that got worse than better, worse than better. I'd try to take medicine, it would mess me up for a while, you know, stuff like that, until I found good medicine. And then in 2020, uh, the pandemic started, and I was still working at the Ethereum Foundation. At that point, I was spending weeks at a time in bed, hardly working. I was like super depressed, didn't get out of bed, didn't shower. And those thoughts were looping in my head. So by that time, they were looping for six to eight hours at a time. And that's when I was like, okay, I can't lay here thinking about the six to eight hours because eventually I'll move to the next step. So this was the warning flag of a warning flag. And so I went to a, a mental hospital, like an emergency mental hospital near my, where I lived. And if I would have called 911, they would have sent like an officer who then takes me to a hospital and it's a whole expensive deal. So we just drove me to one. And I stayed there for a week and it was basically there to not help, but to just make sure I don't kill myself. And then I got out, and I was still pretty bad. And then a year later, I went again to another mental hospital after I left the Ethereum Foundation. But this time, it was one that I researched a little bit for if this were to happen again. It's called Meninger Clinic in Houston, and it's very, very good. I got my own dedicated doctor and psychiatrist and psychologist. They did DNA testing to see what medicines worked and put me on a whole new regimen. I did like just a bunch of stuff. They had a saltwater pool with aerobics. This was a bougie place. Nice. I, I was there with like- Yeah, I'm like, who how were,
0: do I sign up? I want to go. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> no. There's it
1: actually does take, there's like a section for we call them burnouts, which was like lawyers and doctors who got burned out and needed to rest. So I was in the one where it was a bit more people who needed to be in, I call it brain jail. So they were in brain jail with me. After I left there, I still was tr- struggling off and on until earlier this year. I kind of like fully worked everything through- for the moment, earlier in January. And then I joined Polygon in March, I think, or March or April. But yeah, that's kind of been it. I also tried various things, IV ketamine treatment and microdosing uh, mushrooms and stuff like that during with varied results.
0: First of all, thank you for being so open and sharing your story with everybody. I'm wondering what you think the biggest learnings are for anybody listening who also feels that burnout, which I'm willing to bet is anyone who works in the space. Like if you work in crypto and you've never felt burnt out, I don't know. I, I need your secrets. Like, please DM me immediately. But I think for most people in the space, we're working in crypto because we love it, like you said. And so we want to work on it all the time. And in a way, it's like, I feel blessed that I get to do a job that I actually love versus so many people hate their jobs but it's like it's a blessing and a curse. How do you manage that so that you don't have to leave your job and check yourself into a mental hospital? What actionable tips do you have for people?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing is telling yourself it's okay to not be okay. The other thing I would say is I think a lot of people, me included, got really nervous about leaving because I was like, oh no, I have all this stuff to do. I have so much on my plate. So many people depend on me or were waiting for me to get back to them about this or that. But it's like, when you're in a plane and the oxygen mask fall, you put yours on first mm-hmm. before you put it on other people's. Otherwise you will suffocate. Uh-huh. So yeah, that's another thing that I've thought about, which is you, you have to take care of your health first because then you won't be at your top shape. And even if you power through it, cause I powered through it for like two years before the first middle hospital trip. And like, I was burned out just on fumes for two years working and that made it worse. Like it made it way worse. So Yeah. uh, The last thing I guess I'd say is definitely talk to people about it. If you're feeling that way, it's not shameful. Like I said, it's okay to not be okay. There's a lot of resources, even like online therapy now and different uh, stuff for depression and anxiety and OCD and things where you may have not even, you might have these symptoms, but you didn't realize it had a name. And then lastly, just fuck everything your parents said because it's okay to like talk about and deal with your mental health because you don't need to suck it up. Maybe they worked and they were sad their whole life doing whatever, but it's not a thing that you have to be the bigger person for. Like it's actually better if you deal with it so that you can be better person in what you do for work and for your family and friends and everything.
0: That and then the other narrative of, you know, you just have to work as hard as possible and hustle in order to make it to the top. And I think that is a big struggle in crypto is like nowadays I spend a lot of time offline out in nature and I post a lot about that and I tell people you know go touch grass and things like that but people who are just getting into the space they ask like how did you work your way up in the space or how did you learn about crypto so fast and the answer is I was always online (laughs) I entered in late 2020 we went through a whole bull run where you just couldn't stop, even for a second. Like, I literally couldn't record a podcast episode a week in advance because by the time it aired, it would be, like, outdated. That's how fast things were moving. And I feel bad almost saying, like, live a balanced life. You got to go touch grass. You got to, like, take care of your mental health and not feel like you have to be online all the time. Because, like, if, if I'm honest with myself, like, how I got to where I am today is by being online all the time. And so I feel almost, like, hypocritical telling people not to do that knowing that they want to achieve certain goals. You know, it's like that conflict. I don't know. Like, do you know Do you know what yeah, I'm saying?
1: I, I have the exact same conflict because, yeah, I feel sometimes like the fact that I'm on all the time early on, that was a big thing. But I also look back and think there are areas where, like, I went overboard or did too much and taking a step back, especially after me burning out and looking back at what all I did, there were definitely things where it was like, I can even reduce it two or three hours and that would have made a big difference, you know, in the day. And like maybe combining things where it's like, oh, I checked my email while going on the treadmill or meet up with people in person more or things like that. So it's going to be different for everyone. But yeah, it's still not great because the ultimate, like, I guess I would have probably traded not being online all the time versus not being in those two middle hospitals uh, because yeah you can be successful and not spend all your time online that's a way that a lot of people get there um i even probably got there that way but i guess i'll never know because that's just how i did it but i've seen other people who actually do have a good work-life balance who don't spend all their time
0: that's true um
1: and they still are successful oh, One last fun fact i said this at shelling point uh earlier i guess in february or something but uh, it was like a mental health or burnout panel. And I said, one of the things I did, which I do not recommend to anyone from 2017 to 2019, I pretty much mirrored Vitalik's travel schedule, which was absolutely insane and also worked during it. And that was a big part of it where I was looking at Vitalik of like, oh, I can work as hard as they do because they really care about Ethereum and I really care about Ethereum. <laughs> but you shouldn't compare yourself to others is the main lesson from that. You shouldn't compare yourselves to um, me and Diana because you shouldn't spend all your time on here. Because it's better to spend pockets of time not doing that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think at the end of the day, too, it's important to remember that everybody's different. Everyone's built different, right? Like you've been diagnosed with certain things. I've been diagnosed with certain things. Everybody else has different backgrounds and has different builds, and so our needs are going to be different as well. And so, like, just because Vitalik can, you know, not just survive but also thrive on whatever travel schedule he was on you know, mm-hmm. and do whatever he was doing doesn't mean that you can do that as well or that I can do that as well. Like we're all different.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I completely agree with that. Yeah, I I think there'll be like a bigger push for people to slow down and take time and stuff over the next few years in Ethereum.
0: Yeah, I've, I feel that happening now in the bear market. And that's honestly probably like one of the positives that's come out of the bear market is people have been forced to slow down. There's just nothing for you to be on about 24 7. You know, you've like read all the tweets in your newsfeed already, <laughs> like eight times.
1: You <laughs> actually get to the end of Twitter, like you're like, what?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And then I think another important point to hit on that topic is from an institutional perspective, like from a company perspective, what can crypto companies do to also help people be better about their mental health? I don't know if you felt this when you left the Ethereum Foundation. But I think a lot of people would fear losing their job and not having a job when they come back if they wanted to take a month's sabbatical to take care of their mental health. What can crypto companies like actionable things they can do to help ensure that their workers are staying sane and performing the the best they can for the long term?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. So on the Ethereum Foundation side, the first time I went to the mental hospital for like the kind of more emergency case. I messaged Aya Miyaguchi, the executive director, and I messaged like the, a group chat with Aya Vitalik and a few other people who'd be taking over my stuff. And I was just like, hey, currently getting driven to a mental hospital. I don't know when I'll be back because I don't know how long they'll hold me or things like that. And Aya Vitalik were both just like, oh, no, take the time you need. Your job will be here when you get back. That was the biggest thing. To say, take your time, You know, you, we're not firing you while we're gone kind of a thing, or like, this doesn't affect your employment status. If you could just at least say that, that made me feel so much better while I was in there because I was like, oh no, I'm going to lose my job. And the other thing I'd say is have resources for mental health, but if you can, and this also applies to HR and people ops or whatever you want to call it, have it be somewhat external to the company because like if you're getting burned out or stressed out or panicking because of someone who is your manager, but that manager is friends with the CEO or whatever, Then when they say, oh, why did you freak out? If there's an HR at the company, the HR is paid by the company. So sometimes they're good, they're not always. But having an external resource to be like, this is the route you take specifically for mental health stuff and here's our policies and here's the leave policy. Even if you're not going to like a mental hospital, but like a mental health leave policy and just make it really clear that that's there and it's okay to use and that you won't be judged for it. That I think that's the biggest thing. Everyone looks to the founders or leadership for like, if they do something, I am then allowed to, right? Like if they mess up on this thing, that makes it more relatable. So more founders and stuff saying like, we understand this is a thing and we're not just half-assing it. Here's the things you would do. Here's who you talk to. And we're reminding you all, you know, every quarter of this, like that, that would be the biggest thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's also why I think it's so cool that you've been so vocal about it because as somebody who, you know, a lot of people know and has a lot of followers on crypto Twitter and a lot of people look up to, I think that's, Really cool of you to speak so openly about it, so other people can feel like, oh, it's normal to feel this way or to talk about it or have this happen.
1: Yeah, and I guess thanks. And I think the last thought I had for for what you just said is, right now, actually, I'm kind of in a depressive state. Like, not like on this podcast necessarily, but just like overall, on the last week, I haven't gotten nearly as much work done as I've wanted to. I've been in bed more. I've been anxious. I'm on a new medicine for panic attacks. So it's like, even though I went through those things and talk about my mental health, it's kind of a continuous all-your-life thing, which I used to get very upset about (laughs) because I was like, why can't I fix my broken brain? But that's just kind of not how it works. So once that acceptance comes, then like, it makes it be okay that, yeah, I have some days where I'm not as productive. I have some days where I need to be in bed a little longer, but I have support with my spouse and friends and therapists and stuff to talk about it and then make plans and make things to change my medicine, have more therapy, get out and touch grass, stuff that might make me feel better. So it's an all your life thing for most of this kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, and I I love that in our generation, people are starting to talk about it more versus like our parents' generation, like you were saying earlier, where it was so taboo. Like my parents, they've, you know, come around and changed. Over time, but at least when I was growing up, it was like, you're depressed. No, you're not. That's <laughs> that doesn't exist. Like it's you just need to control your emotions. Yeah. Like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that's not real. Suck it up. Your life is so good compared to other people's. What do you have to be depressed about? You know, it was oh, like man. that that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. sorry if that was triggering for other people who went through it, but I think a lot of people I'm 33, we're like the same age. So I think a lot of people mm-hmm. our age can relate to that. But yeah, I think it's really good. And I think it's good too to like proactively. Learn about yourself as things come up and then proactively take measures to protect yourself in the future. So, like, for me, touching grass is the thing that helps. If I'm feeling any kind of negative way, going into the mountains and running 10 miles is like the cure for me. You know what I mean? And like, that probably does not sound fun, and that would probably put a lot of people into a depressive state if they had to do that. Yeah, I would. I would not if, be doing that. But yeah, it's like when I got my dog. I have like a herding breed who's really active, and they're like you have to exercise them so much, and you know, a tired dog is a good dog. You just have to like keep them physically stimulated, mentally stimulated. Otherwise, they're going to get into trouble. I could relate to that so much because I feel like that's me. (laughs) Like that's literally me. So me and my dog are like the same person. We get along great.
1: That's awesome. That Wait, what what breed of dog is it?
0: Well, he's a mutt, but he's mostly Australian cattle dog and husky. Mm.
1: Oh man. that's Yeah, that's active.
0: Like they're meant to like be on a farm herding cattle all day and I don't Mm. live on a farm and I don't have any cattle. So got to (laughs) find other ways. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Well, any final thoughts, Hudson, for our listeners about anything we talked about today, about the Ethereum origins, about mental health, about anything?
1: Yeah. I think the best thing that anyone can do, no matter how technical or non-technical or whatever, to help Ethereum is to participate in online discussion and encourage non-toxic discussion. If you're in an argument with someone, tap out if you're just like, this isn't going anywhere, or you can just say, agree to disagree there's ebbs and flows of if there's that or not, like depending on market conditions (laughs) and like sentiment and like what things have collapsed lately and things like that. But yeah, just kind of put a new twist. I guess the last thing is like a lot of people ask, like, how do you get into the space or things like that? My number one thing is to interact. So like, Write blogs, write tweets, even just once a day, try to respond to one t- tweet that says, hey, great article. Literally do that. Have the same icon on Discord, Telegram, and Twitter, and jump into group chats where you say opinions and whatever else. You don't even have to get on video ever. You don't even have to like, verbally talk ever. There's entirely Ann and people who have never had to do that. It's literally just about not l- lurking all the time and just getting involved and people will start to notice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the the writing and the blogging and the creating content thing is something I've always pushed for, too, because if you want to test your knowledge of something, the best way to do that is to explain it back to somebody else. Write a blog post about it. That'll show you if you really understand the concept or not. And speaking of blogs, you have an excellent blog, which I'm going to link in the show notes. Yeah, and
1: it it has a few articles primarily on ethereum core developer topics
0: yeah i was gonna say if people want to get more into the technical stuff which i know we didn't do on this episode because our audience is largely not very technical but for the f- people listening who do want to learn more about the technical side of things hudson has a lot of great articles on his blog i was just reading one about prog pow which is kind of deep oh yeah that's <laughs>
1: it's a super deep cut and an old cut. But one of the more interesting ones that non-technical people would even like is how are decisions made in Ethereum? It's mm-hmm. like not that long, but I, I outline how something goes from an idea to going into actual Ethereum protocol.
0: Yeah, I'll, I will definitely link that in the show notes. And then for our last question on every episode, this is one from the community. We had the community submit three questions to ask our guests in advance. I'm going to read you all three. You only have to answer one of them. So okay. the first one is from Meg Lister. It's what's your favorite crypto drama and tell us all about it. You, I'm sure you have great answers for that one. The second one also submitted by Meg Lister. Who would you invite on the podcast next season? And then the last question is from Floppy Abe. It is estimate your success rate and your attempts to crypto pill your off-chain friends and family members. Paint me a word picture of your average attempt.
1: Yeah, no, I, 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 can, I can't answer all three, but I'll just go ahead and do this for my nomination. Um, Tux Pacific who is a cryptographer. She's worked on New Cipher and I believe is starting a, another startup that does secure encrypted transactions. as far as the biggest drama, ProgPow is definitely up there. That affected my life heavily for a long time. But the Bitboy stuff recently also was pretty crazy, and then my top one would definitely be the FTX meltdown. I was literally online for 12 straight hours with like an adrenaline rush so high that I almost fell over when I stood up out of my chair. So yeah, that's, that's probably it. And the last one was what, oh, how do I crypto pill? I've almost stopped trying because it's just at a point right now where everything's about trading and tokens and stuff. So I'm I'm starting to get into a uh, zero knowledge proof talk that I'm I'm coming up with people.
0: Nice, nice. I'd be curious to hear that. Hopefully you write a blog post or YouTube video or something about that. Cool. Well, thank you so much. You're the first one to answer all three questions. So shout Ah. out to you for doing that. (laughs) And thank you again, for taking the time to come on the podcast today and be so open with sharing your learnings and your experiences with us. Tell people where they can find you if they want to follow you personally, and then feel free to plug away at anything else you're working on personally or at Polygon or whatever.
1: Sure. So basically, HudsonJameson.com. I don't update that blog often, but I do have some writings there and some contact links. At Hudson Jameson on Twitter, and then as far as plugging anything, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff happening in Polygon y'all can check out. But the main thing would be, I've been working behind the scenes and stealth on something with Sam CZ Son. The first was SEAL 911. And then today there was the SEAL program for having like red team attacks. So if you go to Sam CZ Son's profile, they kind of low-key launch tweets about the different S-E-A-L things. And there's going to be a larger launch eventually, but I guess you heard it here first. There's a larger launch eventually. And until then, we have some experiments.
0: hopefully thank you so much. I will definitely be checking that out and we'll link all that in the show notes as well. Well, thank you so much, Hudson. And thank you everybody for tuning in. And we'll be back again next week with another episode of Rehash. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Rehash. Rehash is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Diana Chen, and sponsored by Quests and Lore. Rehash is also supported by our community of NFT holders who curate our guest lineup each season. To get involved, head over to our website at rehashweb3.xyz and collect this episode as an NFT. Anyone who collects an episode becomes part of the Rehash community and will be able to nominate guests for future seasons. To learn more about how to become a guest on the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz podcast. And to learn more about sponsoring the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz sponsor. Finally, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at rehashweb3 or on lens at rehash.lens. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.